0: Good morning. Once again, it is really good to be with you this morning. This week, I had a really good lesson on what it's like to be a part of a family, uh, part of a a church family here. Within a 24-hour period, three really significant things happened. So on Wednesday afternoon, um, Ross came by the building with Michelle, um, and they walked into the waters right over here, and Michelle put on Jesus and baptism. And that was a, a great time and a time to rejoice and then that evening, Calvin walked into those same waters with Mike, and Mike put on Jesus in baptism, more rejoicing and then a few hours later, Velma Meeks went on to her reward, um, and it gave us an opportunity to rejoice about that, but to also mourn with Johnny and with Pam and the rest of the family and That gives us an opportunity as a family to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, to mourn with those who are mourning, and be a real family to draw close together and celebrate what needs to be celebrated and also cry with those who need to be cried with. So I want to encourage all of us to find those people that are involved in each of those situations and let them know how much you care because we are a family here at Netherwood Park. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this day. Father, I thank you for this family of believers that meets here at Netherwood Park. And, Father, I thank you for the love that we have for each other and the love that we have for you. And, Father, we know how much you love us because you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us so that we can stand in your presence clean and holy. And, Father, so that we can look forward to the day that we will go to our reward and spend eternity with you and your Son, Jesus, and also with our family. And, Father, we thank you for this time that we have to be together time that we can study your word, time that we can look at your story and see how you've been working for your people over centuries. And, Father, we thank you for being a God who works for our benefit today. And, Father, help us to be a people who do shine our lights to the world who is around us so that we can bring your light to the darkness, Father, so that people will see you in us. And, Father, this is our prayer through Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. So over the last several weeks, we've been moving fairly quickly through God's story found in the Bible. And we've been watching him work for the benefit of his people. And we've been focusing on how our individual stories find purpose and meaning in God's story. So we've moved from creation where we saw the world and we saw life as it was always meant to be. And we watched rebellion bring paradise crashing down. And we saw Adam and Eve banished from the garden And when they left the garden, they found a world that was very far from paradise. And we saw the world outside the garden continue to deteriorate until God's very good creation had been replaced by a world where mankind was described as continuously evil. And we watched God send a great purging flood that came with a hope of a new beginning with Noah and his ark. But that hope of a fresh start was short-lived and people moved further and further away from paradise and became more and more removed from their God. And then we saw Abraham accept his missional call to bring light and blessings to the nation. And we heard God promise to bless Abraham with numerous descendants and with a land for those descendants to call their very own. And we watched God at work keeping his promises to Abraham through Isaac and through Jacob and through his great-grandson, Joseph. Joseph who blessed the nations and preserved Abraham's family in the midst of a terrible famine. But with the passing of time, Abraham's descendants went from being honored guests in Egypt to enslaved threats to Egypt. And we saw God call Moses to accept his mission to set God's people free. And we saw Moses' rescue mission culminate in the Passover story as Abraham's descendants loaded down with the Egyptian silver and Egyptian gold, left Egypt, and they were free at last. And then last week, we saw the journey back to the promised land interrupted because the people needed spiritual formation and they needed spiritual discipline. So they spent a year parked at Mount Sinai, and then they spent 40 years wandering in the desert until finally, under the leadership of Joshua, God's mighty hand brought Abraham's people back to Canaan back to the promised land. And that's where we pick up the story today, back in Canaan. And in today's chapter of the story, we're going to hear many familiar themes. We're going to see a number of familiar plot lines. As the great philosopher Yogi Berra famously said, it's going to be deja vu all over again this morning. So as we take up this story, Israel had taken control of much of Canaan. And the various tribes have been settled in their own regions and the people are united under the leadership of Joshua. And they're living in obedience to their covenant with God. This is truly one of the high points in the history of Abraham's descendants. See, now the great nation that was promised to Abraham is in the promised land. It has a land to call their own. And it's quite a land. In fact, Canaan was in many ways a return to Eden, a return to the garden. It wasn't a perfect land that was built on perfect relationships. It wasn't paradise, but it was a far cry from the desert where this generation had spent its life. And as Joshua nears the end of his life, he does what great biblical leaders do. He gathers his people together to impress on them one more time what God has done for them and what God expects from them in return. And as Joshua gives his last instructions and he gives his last reminders and he gives his last warnings to his people, God speaks through Joshua and God speaks to the people to impress upon them just how faithful he has been to his promises by bringing them to this land by bringing them to the new Eden. Joshua 24, verse 11. God, speaking through Joshua, says this. He tells the people, You crossed the Jordan, and you came to Jericho. And the citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands, I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and cities you did not build. And you live in them, and you eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. Doesn't that sound familiar? God brought his people to a land that he prepared, that he gave to them. He drove out the nations, and now his people are living in cities that they didn't build, and they're eating from vineyards and groves that they didn't plant. This is a new Eden, and the Israelites are enjoying the fruits of the land that was prepared for them in advance. Not fruits of their own efforts, not fruits of their own labor, but fruits of others' efforts. And speaking of fruit, in this Eden we see something else that's familiar. Because in this Eden, in the promised land, God also warns against eating forbidden fruit. Only this time, the forbidden fruit doesn't grow on a tree. Instead, what is forbidden is any contact with the pagan gods. The pagan gods that Abraham was called away from. The pagan gods that the ancestors knew in Egypt. Any contact with the pagan gods that are worshipped by the people who surround the Israelites. And just like in the garden, this is a life and death matter. It's a life and death matter that weighs very heavily on the heart of Joshua as he prepares to leave the people in the hands of other leaders. So throughout his last address to the people, Joshua returns again and again to his concerns for the future of God's people. See, Joshua's going to die with an unsettling and unanswered question in his mind. And that question is, will Abraham's children serve the God who brought them out of Egypt and gave them this land? Or will they partake of the forbidden fruit by adopting the pagan gods? Listen to some of the language of concern in Joshua's words, taken from chapters 23 and 24 of Joshua. He first encourages them, he says, Be very strong. He says, Be careful. Be careful to obey the law of Moses. He exhorts them to love the Lord their God. He tells them that they must fear the Lord. He encourages them to serve the Lord with all faithfulness. He tells them that they must hold fast to the Lord. And he impresses upon them that they must yield their hearts to the Lord. Joshua is very concerned. Listen also to the concern in Joshua's voice as he warns the Israelites. He tells them to throw away, to do away with the foreign gods. He warns them that they must not associate and intermarry with the nations. He says, do not invoke the name of their gods. Do not serve their gods. Do not bow down to their gods. Joshua is very concerned. And the reason Joshua is so concerned is because he knows that, just like in Eden, this is a matter of life and death. Joshua knows that if they continue to serve God and if they'll continue to serve God alone, they will continue to enjoy the land that God has given them. They'll continue to live in cities that they didn't build and they'll continue to eat from vineyards and groves they didn't plant. But Joshua knows that there's another side to that story. He knows that if they partake of the forbidden fruit of the pagan gods, that some things that aren't nearly as pleasant are going to happen to them. So Joshua warns them that if they partake of the foreign gods, if they bow down to the foreign gods, if they invoke their names, then the Lord will no longer drive out the nations from the lands that are still to be conquered. He tells them that their victories will turn into defeats. And he warns them if they bow down to other gods, the nations around them will become their snares, they'll become their traps, their whips their thorns he warns them that instead of a return to the freedom of the garden what they can expect and experience is a return to the slavery the slavery experienced in Egypt and Joshua warns them that if they worship these other gods they will perish from the land that God has given them it will no longer be their land and they will no longer even be found in the land And Joshua warns that if they turn away from God, he will turn away from them. And he'll bring disaster on them, and he'll make an end to them. Tells them that God will turn his mighty hand, which has been working powerfully against the other nations. He'll turn his mighty hand against the Israelites. And they'll see his power working against them, no longer for them. So it's a life Or death choice facing Israel as Joshua prepares to leave. And as great leaders will, Joshua makes it very clear what choice he has made. And what choice he has made for his family. Joshua 24 and verse 14, we read this. Joshua says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But... If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your forefathers, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was The Lord God himself who brought us and our fathers out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua set the example by declaring his choice. And then he led the people to make and declare their choices. And they emphatically echoed Joshua's choice when they said, We, too, will serve the Lord. And despite Joshua's skepticism, the Israelites did serve the Lord. Reading now from Judges chapter 2 and verse 6, we read this. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. They followed up on their vow. They did serve God for a while. Verse 10. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They served the pagan gods. And this ushers in the time of the judges. It's a time in God's story that's like continually reliving the Exodus story. Except in the story of the judges, the Israelites repeatedly end up enslaved because they forgot their God and they forgot what he had done for them. Unlike their ancestors, who were enslaved because the Egyptians forgot Joseph, their ancestor. See, their ancestors found themselves enslaved through no fault of their own in Egypt But the Israelites, during the time of the judges, found themselves enslaved because they continued to repeat the same cycle over and over and over again. The cycle went like this. First, there was apostasy. There was the turning away from God and turning away from their covenant with him and instead embracing the pagan gods. And the Israelites' apostasy would provoke God's anger instead of using his mighty hand to benefit the Israelites, his hand would turn against them and they would be defeated and enslaved by the other nations. And then the next stage in the cycle would be the Israelites would cry out to God and then he would raise up a deliverer, another deliverer, a judge, and that judge would come and rescue the people. And Reading now from chapter 2 and verse 18. And whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. And the cycle would begin again. Apostasy, anger, punishment, crying out to God and then rescue from their situation by God. And throughout these cycles, God consistently placed the blame right where it belonged. See, God was angry with his people. The blame was on his people when they acted like the pagans. See, God knew that because he had their hearts, they shouldn't be acting that way. God knew that if he had their hearts, they wouldn't and couldn't act that way. See, he didn't place the blame for the Israelites' behavior on the pagans. He placed it on the Israelites' He didn't place it on the pagans because God had no claim on their hearts. The fault doesn't lie with the pagans for acting like pagans. That's what we would expect them to act like. The fault lies with God's people for acting like pagans, for giving their hearts, their hearts that should belong to God, giving their hearts to other gods. And so into this vicious cycle came Samuel. Samuel, a great priest, a great prophet, and the last great judge of Israel. And Samuel stepped into the void left by the dysfunction of Eli's family, and God worked powerfully through him to turn Israel back to their God and to restore the promised land to his people. We're now in the book of 1 Samuel. We're reading in 1 Samuel chapter 7, starting with verse 13. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to her. And Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the power of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And that's the good news. But then Samuel's sons and heirs to his role as Israel's judge were corrupt men. And Israel's elders decided it was time for a new chapter in their history. It was time for the chapter of the kings. And this chapter in Israel's history doesn't begin on a very hopeful note. Because the reason that Israel wants a king is the reason they've been caught up in the judges' cycle. They want a king so they can be like the nations that surround them. Samuel's very displeased at their request, and God shares Samuel's displeasure. But he speaks to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8 and verse 7, and he says, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. And that's what Samuel does. Samuel warns them about the slavery that awaits them and their children in servitude to a king. And he warns them in verse 18 that when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen and the Lord will not answer you on that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. And the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. And so the Lord, the great I am, the one who has been going before them and fighting their battles gives them a king. He gives them Saul to go before them and fight their battles. And God's mighty hand is with Saul. It's with Saul in battle, and Israel expands its borders, and it expands its power, and expands its influence. And then Saul, too, turns from God's commands. And God turns away from Saul, and he turns to David, to King David. And David's story is a fascinating story. David, in many ways, reminds us of Abraham, because David, like Abraham, was both deeply faithful to God and also deeply flawed. And King David ushers in a time of unprecedented Israelite power and prosperity, and it's a time of unity of the people. See, David's a man of war, but he's also a man of worship, He produces great victories on the battlefield, but he also produces great songs to God. And many of those songs we find in the Bible, in the book we call Psalms. And then when David died, his son Solomon became king, and the borders and power and influence of Israel continued to expand. And Solomon was able to do what his father David only dreamed of doing. He was able to build a great temple to God in Jerusalem. But Solomon, too, had a weakness. He had a weakness for forbidden fruit. And at the end of his triumphant reign as king of Israel, it also signals the beginning of the end of Israel. The tragedy of Israel begins to unfold in 1 Kings chapter 11. We read this. King Solomon loved many foreign women from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites. You must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. So the cycle continues. Solomon turns away from God and God turns away from Solomon. And when Solomon died, Israel, the nation that proved that it had a divided heart, became a divided nation with kings to the north and kings to the south. And because they are divided... Their light is also divided. It's divided to the point where it's eclipsed by the darkness of the nations. And as we look ahead to the next chapter in God's story, we have to wonder we have to wonder if the people are going to once more cry out to their God. And we have to wonder if they do cry out to their God, will God once more come to the rescue of his people? So as we close this chapter in God's story, I hope it leaves you with a determination to not have deja vu all over again. To not have deja vu all over again in our day. With a determination to not repeat the judge's cycle of forgetting our God and what he's done for us and turning to the gods of the nations. But I also hope that you leave this chapter with joy. With joy, because we don't have to break the judge's cycle on our own. You see, God already broke the judge's cycle. And he did it when he sent Jesus Christ to rescue us. You see, our rescuer has already come. He's already come to free us from the slavery of sin. And our rescuer still lives and his spirit lives within us. Our rescuer, Jesus Christ, worked on our behalf at the cross, and he is still working for us. Jesus still hears our cries, and because he's present now, he answers and forgives our sins now. We should all thank God for Jesus Christ, whose death signaled victory for God's people, instead of the defeat that followed the death of each of God's judges. But we can't let our joy about our Savior hide the fact that the Israelite story really is our story. We can't pretend that we don't see ourselves in the Israelites. And since we see ourselves in their story, we need to humbly confess that the lure of idolatry is still powerful in our lives. There are still pagan gods out there that call to us. Pagan gods like the the God of sex, the God of power. The God of fame, the God of money, the God of selfishness. We need to humbly confess that those are still strongly pulling us away from our God today. And because they do pull at us, and they pull at us continually, we have to continually choose who we will serve. We need to have a moment like joshua had with his people and continually make the choice will we serve the god of abraham and the god of joshua and the god of david or will we choose to serve our lust for those other gods and we're also like israel and that we have a god who still hears our cries See, when we were trapped by our sins and we want the freedom that only comes through Jesus, we just have to cry out for help and then turn back to the God who rescues us and who is still faithful to his people. And then we can live in the hope and the assurance that our faithful God has promised and prepared a land for his people, the people whose hearts he possesses. We have heaven for eternity to look forward to. And there we'll truly find the new Eden. We'll truly find the promised land. And I stand before you this morning wanting you to know that I look forward to that land. I look forward to being there with you. My tribe, my family, my church, I look forward to being there with you. So I'm going to ask you guys to do something different this morning. I'm going to ask you to recommit with me this morning as a church, as a family, and also as individuals. Recommit to our intention to serve the Lord and serve the Lord only, the Lord who has faithfully rescued us. I'm going to ask you to stand up. So go ahead and do that down. Zane, you can go ahead and walk up. And I'm going to start off by echoing the words of Joshua. Not because I consider myself a great leader and not because I think I'm towards the end of my life. I I don't think I am. But because I want us all to commit together to serving our Lord. So I'm going to start out by echoing the words of Joshua. I'm going to read this. I'm going to read, Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then I'm going to ask you to echo back to me. As a church together, boldly and proudly, we too will serve the Lord. Once you make that commitment with me. So church... Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. We, too, will serve the Lord. We can do that better. Let's do it again. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And you say, we, too, will serve the Lord. So with those words still on our lips, let's stand and sing together to our faithful God.